Well, good morning. If you would, take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 28, verse 17. Acts chapter 28, verse 17. This morning we're going to finish our journey through the text of Acts. Uh, there'll be more to come in the series, but we're going to uh, continue finished this morning our journey through the text of Acts. Last week we looked uh, mainly at Acts chapter 20 uh, as we saw Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. You remember he is there uh, at Miletus and he calls the elders together and he gives them one last charge because he is on his way to Jerusalem and eventually as the text leads us through we find that Paul is on his way to Rome and to the ends of the earth. And so that is the text that is before us this morning as Paul completes his journey all the way to Rome. Read with me, if you would, in Acts chapter 28, verse 17, all the way to the end of the book, verse 31. After three days, Paul called together, uh, he called together the local leader, leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Verse 30 and 31, Luke gives us the description of Paul's ministry going forward. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him Doing what? Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for speaking to us in the Bible and supremely in the life, death, and resurrection, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning as we look into your word that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this for the good of your people, for the salvation of souls, and for the glory of Christ. Supremely we pray it. Amen. Some of, some of the people in this room are old enough to remember the hit show Dallas. 
which aired from 1978 to 1991. And it's always good to insult your audience right when, you, right when you open a sermon. But some of us are old enough to remember. Although popular after um, the, the first season, uh, the show really began to increase in popularity during the second season, in the 1980 season. And it really rose to popularity at the very end. Some of you are, are familiar that uh, as the producers were uh, looking around and seeing that the number one ratings of the show and so forth, they, they determined they wanted to ride the wave as long as they could. And so uh, they decided to have a cliffhanger of sorts at the very end of the season. And so they, even not knowing how they would really wrap everything up or how they would tie up all the loose ends, they determined to have the main character, J.R. Ewing, shot at the very end of the season. And they said, well, we'll figure it out when we come back next year. And so over the course of the summer of 1980, there was across America this hysteria that was captured by the three-word slogan, Who Shot J.R.? T-shirts were printed with references, Who Shot J.R.? and I Shot J.R.? During the presidential campaign of 1980, the presidential campaign in particular of Ronald Reagan, Republicans wore badges saying, a Democrat shot J.R. <laughs> Larry Hagman, the uh, character, who, the, the person who played um, J.R. Ewing on the television show, uh, took a vacation in England uh, over the summer, and he was presented to the Queen of England. And he reports that as they were, they were conversing there, the Queen of England at one point leaned over to him and said, I don't suppose you could tell the Queen who shot J.R., do you? An estimated 80 million Americans and 350 million people worldwide tuned in for the opening episode the following season. My favorite fact about this, uh, about the hysteria, is that a session of the Turkish parliament was suspended to allow legislators a chance to get home in time to view the opening episode the, opening episode the following fall. Now, what, is this, what does this tell us, other than the fact that we're nuts? It tells us, it reminds us that we desire resolution. We want to know how things turn out. We want to know the end of the story. And that truth about us is really the primary reason that so many people have found the end of Acts, the, the ending of Acts that Luke gives us, so unsatisfactory. I mean, you think about, if you've been reading along uh, in the book of Acts, for 20 chapters, from chapter 9, where Paul is converted on the Damascus Road, for 20 chapters, we've been following this man named Paul. For the last seven chapters, we've journeyed from, from Jerusalem all the way as we get to Rome, going through shipwrecks and all kinds of distress and danger. We've been told of an upcoming trial, that Paul will stand trial before Caesar, who we know as Nero. He's the, humanly speaking, he's the hero of the story, yet Luke never tells us how it ends. He never tells us exactly what happens to Paul. There have been all kinds of theories and all kinds of uh, suggestions put forward as to why Luke doesn't really give us the end of the story. I think ultimately the reason that we don't have the ending maybe that we think that we ought to have, but the reason we don't have the kind of resolution to the book of Acts that we, that we think we ought to have the reason that he never finishes the story is because the story is not finished. 
the story continues in the life of this church and the life of churches just like this one. The story, continue, the story of Acts continues in our lives all across Birmingham this week. It continues in countless gospel opportunities at the office, at, at work, at, at your home, in your neighborhood, in bedtime conversations with yet converted children. Everywhere the Lord gives us an opportunity to share the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the story of Acts continues. And it's that reality that is both, a, is both a blessing, unspeakable privilege that we have to, to continue the story of Acts, but is at the same time, in a sense, a burden. Because we look at our lives, many of us, look at our lives, and we just don't see the advance of the gospel like we desire to see it. If we're honest, most of us would say, as we talked about last week, as Andrew challenged us, you know, the, the, the continuation, the advance of the gospel, yes, there is a lifestyle that we are to live, and there's a corporate witness, and that absolutely plays into everything that we do. But there is also, as Andrew challenged us last week, there is also a time when we are called to verbally proclaim the gospel, to give a reason, as Peter says, for the hope that lies within us. And many of us, and I would include myself in that number, many of us, when it comes to that point, struggle with actually communicating, finding the words, finding, finding the resolve those words actually flow from our lips to speak about Jesus. And so what I want, to, what I want you to see this morning, what I want you to do, is I, I want to look at Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31, and I want to do two things mainly. I want to encourage you in, in the advance of the gospel wherever you are at. Okay? Wherever the Lord has called you, all the opportunities the Lord gives you, I want to encourage you where you're at. And then I want also not only to encourage you, but also to equip you in speaking about Christ. But probably not in the way that you imagine. And so here's what I want us to do. If you, if you look at Acts chapter, you can look at, your, look at your outline for just a moment. As you see Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. And you'll notice it kind of falls into, into two parts. First of all, I want, us to see, I want us to see the advance of the gospel in the life of Paul. All right? I want us to look at, at what it looks like in the life of Paul, and then by extension, what the advance of the gospel ought to look like in, in our lives. Now, having said that, I, wanna, I, want, you to be, I want us to be very careful and I want to be, I want to be very, uh, very clear when I say that I'm not saying that everything that we see in Paul's life we ought to see in ours. All right? I don't, I, the last thing that I want as we talk about spreading the gospel, as we speak about advancing the gospel, looking at the life of Paul, the last thing that I want for you to walk away with from this sermon is, man, I'm the worst Christian ever. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't go the ends of the earth and... I'm not being beaten, I'm not being stoned for the gospel, and you know, I'm not, I'm not witnessing to 10 people every day, I'm not witnessing to 10 people every year. I don't want you to walk away with, man, I'm just, I'm just not doing enough. I'm just, I'm just not there. Because we want to keep in mind, as we look at a text like this, that very simply, everybody is not Paul. Not everyone in this room is called to be an apostle with a capital A. In fact, I would say none of us are. 
Not every one of us is called to be a preacher of the gospel in the, in the technical term that we see in, 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 in the scriptures. Not every one of us is called to be a missionary in the sense that we, that we leave constantly where we are at and, and that we move to another culture, another, another people group. Not everybody is called to do the very same things that Paul is called to do. All of us, as we, as we know, all of us have different callings. We have different giftings. We have different opportunities. We have different levels of influence. And so not every one of us, in fact, few of us are going to be a Paul. But what I would say is we may, not, we may not replicate the life of Paul, but I do think that scriptures like this intend, are intended for us to replicate the heart of Paul. We may not replicate the life of Paul, but we are intended, I think, to replicate the heart of Paul. And so what I want to do is I want you to lead you through this passage. I want you to see, kind of see the heart of Paul. All right, as he engages particularly those around him that do not know Christ. And so I want us to see the heart of Paul, and then the second part is very simple. I want to ask, how do we get there? All right, how do we get to, the, to where we see the heart of Paul, and we see it in our own life? So what do we see, and then how do we get there? Notice first, all right, if we're going to continue the advance of the gospel, you see it there in your notes. If we're going to continue the advance of the gospel, what do we see? We must have the same concern for others' souls. First step, if we're going to see the advance of the gospel, we must have the same concern for other souls. And there are a lot of ways that we see this in this text and really in, in the, the entirety of Acts and even in the entirety of Paul's letters. But I want you to, I want you to think about all that, we, all that we have seen. We've moved over a lot of texts in the last week in particular. So uh, you'll remember if you, we've, we've covered from Acts like 20 to 26 over the last week. And so I want to take you back just to kind of set the context to, to see where, where Paul, what, what brings Paul to this point here in Acts chapter 28? Turn back, if you would, to Acts chapter 21, verse, 30, verse 27, rather. Acts chapter 21, verse 27. Remember what we said, that last week we looked at Paul, he calls the elders together, Asia Minor, this place called Miletus, and he speaks to them, and then the Spirit tells him, hey, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be prosecuted, and so he says, that's still going. And so he, he goes toward Jerusalem. And he lands there, and then in Acts chapter 21, verse 27, look at what we read. When the seven days were almost completed, and notice who it is, the Jews, note that word, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, seeing Paul there, stirred the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, namely the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And so what we see from Acts chapter 21 all the way till we get to Acts chapter 28 is Paul is dogged at every corner, at every step. He is, he is pushed by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the religious leaders, by the rulers. The Jews are oppressing him, seeking to have him persecuted and prosecuted. And what we realize is this is really no new thing, and, and that we have seen this all along, that Paul is continually persecuted, not just in general, but persecuted by the Jews over and over. And you don't have to turn to these passages, but I want you to maybe note them in your notes, or maybe write them out on the side of your Bible. Listen to, listen to these, these texts in Acts, for starting Acts chapter 13, verse 50. But the Jews... 
Notice who it was. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. So Acts 13.50, we see Paul being persecuted by the Jews. We see it again in Acts 14, verse 2. Now at Iconium, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and notice the language that Luke uses, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so we see the Jews poisoning the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14.2. Again in Acts 14, verse 19, we read that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Again, in Acts 17, verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. One last time in Acts chapter 20, verse 3. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so the picture that we have is this. All throughout the book of Acts, Paul is steadfastly opposed and persecuted by the Jewish people. And now, looking to our text, notice the very first line in Acts chapter 17, verses 17 through 31. Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. The very first line, Paul has arrived in Rome. He's been brought there because of Jewish opposition, Jewish persecution, Jewish prosecution after three days he called together the local leaders was that line of the jews now i think there are only two options at this point either i mean to explain this i think there are only two options either paul has taken one too many stones upside the head or paul has a genuine love for the souls of these people. And it is obviously in the context of Acts and even in the context of this passage, it is obviously the latter. Paul loves these people and desires for them to come to Christ. Isn't that what we see as we read on? We, we, can, look at, as, as we can look at the way he addresses them in verses 18 all the way down through verse 22 as he, as he seeks to have an opportunity, as he, as he seeks not to necessarily offend them and to win for, for, for himself and for them a hearing of the gospel, but we see it supremely in Acts chapter 28, verse 23. Notice what Luke tells us. When they had appointed a day for him, for Paul to preach the gospel. They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And I want you to listen to the way that it's described. From morning until evening, he expounded to them. That word expound is just another, word, another way of thinking of preaching. He just preached the gospel. Certainly it involved questions and answers, no doubt. But from morning until evening, he poured out his heart. He expounded to them the scriptures. And then notice what it says. Two, two modifiers to that, how he did that. Testifying to the kingdom of God, number one, and number two, trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. And so what do we see? Notice how Luke describes it. Notice how he describes the preaching of Paul. He said it includes, first of all, testifying. He says testifying to the kingdom of God. The word that is used there is a word that means to declare solemnly or to declare emphatically. It means to charge someone under a solemn oath. It means to warn someone, for example, about the kingdom of God. And so, yes, there are, what I, what I think we can draw from it, yes, there are facts that we are to present. 
there's a, there's a story that we are to communicate. And so it's not our story. It's not anything about us. It's in the same way that Paul, he testifies. And there's an object to that. He testifies not to himself or to anything else, but the kingdom of God in Christ. He testifies to Christ. But I want you to notice, as, Paul, as, as Luke describes it, it is not a dispassionate testifying. Rather, notice the word he used. He says he is trying He is trying to convince them, trying to persuade them. The word that is used there involves passion, emotion. It is a pleading with people to come to Christ. It's interesting that in Greek mythology, there was a Greek goddess named Pathos, Pathos, excuse me, Pathos, using the same root word that is used here for Paul's trying to convince them. She was, in Greek mythology, a goddess, and this gives you the picture of what Paul is doing here, a goddess of seduction, a goddess of persuasion. And so I don't think it's too much to say that, that what Luke is communicating here about Paul's preaching is that Paul, as it were, is begging them. He is pleading with them come to Christ. He is, he is imploring them to be reconciled to God as he speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He is pleading with them to come to Christ. And when I read that, I am instantly convicted that that is not me. That more often than not, I lack that kind of passion. That more often than not, I am content to to shut my mouth and know in my heart, as best as the Lord can reveal it, that that person before me is headed for an eternity apart from Christ. And yet, quite often I find in my heart an indifference to their eternity. Brothers and sisters, when I look at this passage... Now look at Paul seeking them out. Three days. It's not three months or three years even. Within three days, just long enough to to get the paperwork settled. Within three days, he is calling them to himself. He is appointing another day for them to, to, to hear the gospel. He is expounding from morning to evening. He is testifying of the kingdom of God. And he is attempting to persuade them. He is imploring them, begging them to come to Christ. Brothers and sisters, what this passage reminds me of is that we cannot ignore the lost people around us. That we cannot ignore the lost people around us. The people around us may be religious, they may... They may be leaders in the community, just like these people here in Acts chapter 28. They may appear to have all things together. They may not even be looking for the gospel. But apart from Christ, Scriptures teach that apart from Christ, every single person is destined for hell. That every person has earned hell that every person has rebelled against God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of us, apart from Christ, will spend an eternity under the eternal wrath of God. We cannot ignore the lost people around us. Rather, we must plead passionately with the lost people around us. We must plead passionately with the lost people around us. Think about Romans 9. Paul, as he speaks about his countrymen, he says, oh, 
oh, my heart breaks. My heart longs. It aches for them to come to Christ. They have all the promises, all the privileges. It says, oh, that I would, I would be cut off if only my, my kinsmen in the flesh would come to Christ. And I wonder, do we have that kind of heart? Not necessarily for the Jewish people, although we ought to, but in particular for the people that God has placed around you. For, the, for your kinsmen in the flesh, as it were. Do we have that kind of passion? Listen to what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon is always so challenging. Listen to what he says about evangelism. He said, if sinners be damned, if sinners be damned, it le- at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. Let them go with our arms around their knees. Let no one go there, unwarned or unprayed for. We must have the same concern for other souls. And number two, we must have the same confidence in God's sovereignty. Advancing the gospel, concern for other souls, and then confidence in God's sovereignty. Notice what Luke says in verse 24 as we continue. He has just preached. He's morning till evening, expounded them, testified, pleaded with them. And then notice the summary of that, verse 24, the results of it. Some were convinced. It's so plain, isn't it? It's so matter-of-fact. Some were, some were convinced by, by what he said, but others disbelieved. Imagine if you were Paul. You have spent all day. You have, you have set a date for them to come, no doubt in the, in the interval between the first, the, the first section as he meets them initially and then he sets another date for them to come. No doubt Paul has spent time praying for them, praying for their hearts, praying for their conversion, praying for the gospel to be clearly explained. He then spends day the morning until the evening, expounding the scriptures to him. He answers their questions, testifies and pleads with them. And literally, the text says, some of them were beginning to be convinced and others disbelieved. It's really a decidedly negative evaluation of what happened. A few were believing, but most did not. You ever... You ever poured out your heart in, in the gospel, prayed for somebody, longed for somebody to come to Christ? God gives you that opportunity. You share the gospel, and they just don't respond. Sometimes our preaching and our teaching and our sharing the gospel just doesn't go the way that we planned. It doesn't have the, the effect that we, that we so desire. I can think about a sermon that I preached years ago. Uh, and it was a sermon uh, at, at another church. It was uh, after Christmas, but before New Year's. And so you kind of have to keep that in mind. Uh, it was sort of a New, Year, New Year's Day sermon, all right? And so uh, I was preaching on Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And I'll read the text. It's finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know, it's really kind of an uplifting text. And so I was encouraging the congregation, you know, I said, you know, there's a tendency and that we all have that to kind of run to the negative, run to criticism and run to things that are not profitable. And so let's this year set our eyes upon Christ, our affections upon Christ. Let's lift high, high Christ and really focus on him. And uh, preach the sermon. And uh, now in that church, we started at 11 a.m. And we were supposed to be done by 12. 
you know, kind of like here, it is here, you know. Uh, and um, I had a fairly regular habit of running over. Uh, and so um, I finished at about 12.10 that day or so. And as was my custom, I went to the back and to shake hands and to greet people as they were walking out. And I'll never forget, uh, as this one lady was walking out, she didn't say a thing about the sermon. She just looked at me with the most cold look you can imagine. And she said to me, she said, I can see that you didn't get an alarm clock for Christmas and walked out. <laughs> Happy New Year to you as well. It's the same way in sharing the gospel preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, wherever the Lord gives us opportunity. Sometimes, it's just not going to have the desired effect. In fact, many times, it's not going to have the desired effect. There are, there are going to be times, many times in our life, when we are going to, we're going to kind of take the risk. The Lord's going to prompt us to share the gospel, to speak about Christ, in whatever way, that, whatever how that looked in your life. We're going to speak about Christ, and as a result... We are going to be rejected, ridiculed, marginalized, and they are going to reject the gospel. But here's what I want you to see. That is going to happen. It happened in the life of Paul, and I want you to notice how Paul responds. I want you to see how Paul responds. It's not necessarily in your notes, but there are two things that Paul does. Look at, if you would, in verse 26. First of all, as Paul is rejected, as he preaches the gospel, he expounds the scripture, he testifies to Christ, and they reject, notice first, he rests in the sovereignty of God over salvation. He rests in the sovereignty of God. Look at what he says in verse, beginning in the middle of 25. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And we don't know if he's saying this after they've turned away, and so it's kind of his conclusion from that. Or, there's a, another way to translate would be, he says this, and that's kind of what breaks the camel's back, and the straw breaks the camel's back, and they leave. So we don't know exactly how that happens. But in, a, in any event, this is Paul's evaluation of what has happened. Some believed, others did not. And so he quotes Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear. And their eyes have closed and they, in their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. The truth is this. God will sometimes overcome the hardness of heart. Praise God. He did it in our case. Sometimes God will indeed overcome the hardness of heart. And indeed, it does take God overcoming that hardness. But in really the mystery of God and really the mystery of Scripture, we don't understand, we can't put it all into a nice, neat package. But sometimes, for whatever reasons, either now or later, God doesn't do that. For whatever reason, God doesn't always overcome the hardness of heart. And our tendency is, our temptation is to despair when God does that, or when God doesn't do that. And what I want you to see is that Paul doesn't despair. Paul, 
Paul rests in the sovereignty of God over salvation. He knows that he is not called to convert a single soul. He is called to preach the gospel. And so Paul rests in that, and then look, what that, look at how that frees him up in verses 30 and 31. As a result of resting in the sovereignty of God, for two years then, he lived at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to, came to him, proclaiming. Notice what he does. He doesn't despair. He doesn't quit. He doesn't, he doesn't stop talking about Christ. Rather, he is, he is emphatically not doing that. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all, notice this, with all boldness and with out hindrance, which tells us this, brothers and sisters, we don't, we don't need to despair over gospel rejection. We don't need to despair over gospel rejection. Rather, we are to persist faithfully in gospel proclamation. We don't despair over gospel rejection. We are to, to persist faithfully in gospel proclamation. You may want to write this scripture out beside this note. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, really gives us a glimpse into what we see detailed here in Acts, but really played out in, in, the, in the ministry, in the writings of Paul. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. You remember that passage? Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But notice what Paul says. This is what they are looking for. This is what they are wanting. This is what they will accept. This is what they are, this is what they are seeking in a preacher. He said, but we don't give them signs and we don't give them wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. And the, and the, the, the verb tense there is it's present and it's active. And that just simply means that it is a continuing, ongoing thing. They seek wisdom, we preach Christ. They demand signs, we preach Christ. They reject, we preach Christ. They ridicule, we preach Christ. On and on and on. We preach Christ, and then that leads to what he says, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Some won't get it. Some will not get it because of the hardness of their own heart. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Brothers and sisters, it is not up to us. We are called not to save anybody, but to preach the gospel. We have the same concern for other souls. The same confidence in God's sovereignty. And number three, we must have the same passion for Christ's kingdom. The same passion for Christ's kingdom. I want you to see... I want you to see what drives Paul more than, I think, love for others or, or, or any kind of earthly reasoning. Not that those things are bad. They're all good. But I want you to see what I think drives Paul at the heart. I want you to look at verse 20. We can see it in verse 20, verse 23, and in verse 30 through 31. That's why I have it there in your notes. But those are kind of parallel ideas. But I want you to see it beginning in verse 20. Where we read, Luke tells us, we can back up to 19. Because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. And then notice this connecting word here. Underline that. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to, to speak to you, or to see you, and to speak with you. And then another connecting word, giving us the fundamental reason why Paul is so driven, why he desires to see them, since it is because of, and this is the, the phrase you want to key into, because of the hope of Israel. It is because of the hope of Israel, Paul says, that I am in these chains. And it begs the question, what is the hope of Israel? What is the hope of Israel for Paul, and why did it drive him so much, and is that same hope to drive us? 
I want to suggest to you that it is if we rightly understand what the hope of Israel is. Turn back with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 23, verse 6. This phrase, the hope of Israel, and kind of related phrases are used in a number of places. I'll go ahead and give them to you if you want to write them down. But all throughout this kind of trial sequence from Acts chapter 21 all the way to Acts 28, we see it mentioned. For example, first in Acts 23, 6, and we'll read it in a minute. Acts 23, 6. Then Acts 24, verses 14 and 15. Acts 24, 14 and 15. Acts 24, verse 21. And then again in Acts 26, verses 6 through 8. I want to read the first two of those to you because I think it gives us a pretty clear glimpse of what is meant by this hope of Israel. Verse 6 of chapter 23. When Paul perceived that one part, this is kind of the initial, initial prosecution, all right? When Paul perceived that one part of the people prosecuting him were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And what you see there, if you look at that phrase, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Those two are tied together grammatically. Those two things go together. And so they really speak to the very same thing. The hope is essentially the resurrection of the dead. And it begs the question, what is the resurrection of the dead? Well, initially, if we think in terms of hope, we think of like heaven and our resurrection. And that is included, but what is interesting is in this phrase, the resurrection of the dead, dead is plural. And so it's really the resurrection of the dead ones, which would include all people. It's not just the resurrection of the righteous that he's talking about, that's what I'm saying. It's the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And we see that in Acts 24. Turn over now. I want you to see it. Make sure you realize I'm not pulling a fast one on you. All right? Acts 24, verses 14 through 15. But I confess this to you, Paul says, that according to the way which they call a sect or a heresy, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having, notice there it is again, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be, and here it is again, a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And it begs the question, how is that a hopeful thing? How is the resurrection of the wicked, the resurrection of the unjust, a good thing, a hope, the hope of Israel? It's where going through the scriptures last year, the entire sweep of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, really, really benefits us as we look into Acts 23, Acts 24, and then Acts 28, where Paul talks about the hope of Israel. Because we are reminded that over and again, that Israel looked forward to a day when the kingdom would come. Israel looked forward to a day when the kingdom would come. That's why it's not an absurd question. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, remember the very beginning of the book, they ask, Jesus Will you at this time do what? Restore the kingdom to Israel. It's not a bad question. It's just they don't understand the timing and the means. It's a good question. They, they look forward to the restoration of the kingdom. They look forward to a day when God would come, when Messiah would come. And when he came, what would he do? He would judge the righteous and the unrighteous. 
He would raise the dead. It would be a day on which God would call to account all those who had rebelled against him and a day in which Isaiah 35 describes when the lame would leap, when the mute would sing, when the, when the deaf would hear, when the blind would see, when the dead would raise to life. They looked forward to a day when Messiah would come, when the kingdom would come, when God would give a new heart, when God would give, when he would pour out his spirit, when he would deliver the captives and set them free, when he would cast their sins as far as the east is from the west. And so when we come to this passage in Acts chapter 28 and we hear about the hope of Israel, we are reminded that for Paul, what we see throughout the book of Acts, for Paul, this hope of the kingdom of Messiah coming, is not something that is way out in the future. For Paul, the kingdom has come now. The kingdom is here. The hope of Israel has arrived in and through the person of and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the kingdom of God has come, and as Luke describes it, it has come to tax collectors and to sinners and to prostitutes. And in our own day, the kingdom of God has come to sorry husbands and cheating wives and disobedient children and losers and outsiders. And all of them have one thing in common. All of them are forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. The kingdom has come. Those that were far off those that were outcasts, those that were prodigal in nature. The kingdom of God has come and he has brought them in. This is the good news that we have to proclaim. That's why over and over, Jesus, it says in the Gospels, he came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He, in Acts chapter 4, we read that they preached the good news. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, we read they preached the good news of the kingdom of God. It's a good thing that we have to offer people. The kingdom of God has come. There is no one who is too far off. There is no one whose sin is too great. No sin is too grievous. No past is too checkered. No reputation too marred. The kingdom of God has come to such as these. And if that is the case, if those things are true, then brothers and sisters, we can't give ourselves, we can't give our hearts to trivial matters. If things of such profound, eternal impact are true, we cannot give our hearts to the passing world of fashion and entertainment and sports and politics and power and money and sex. We can't give our hearts to trivial matters. Rather, we must love deeply the gospel story. This doesn't mean that, that, we, that we can't ever have a conversation with anybody unless it is about the cross of Christ. Does it mean that we can't have pleasant conversation, interaction, relational development with people all around us? We should be doing that. But it is to say that there are some things that matter more than others. And the cross of Christ is supremely that thing. And there is the temptation all across this room to give our hearts to things that just don't matter. 
Satan sets before us all sorts, of, a menu of options intended to distract. Many of them good things, not inherently sinful things, but he, he sets them before us so that we will not give ourselves to the greatest thing. So that we will not give ourselves to the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. We must love the gospel story deeply. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Do we have that kind of conviction? Now, we've said if we're going to advance the gospel, looking at Acts chapter 28, if we're going to advance the gospel, we must have, we must have the same concern for other souls, we must have the same confidence in God's sovereignty, and we must have the same passion for Christ's kingdom. But as we say that, having said that, the last thing that I want to do is to leave you with those bare commands and those bare imperatives and just say, you know what? Like the Nike slogan, just do it. You just need to have, you just need to have more passion for Christ. You just need to have more confidence. You just need to have, you need to have more love, more concern for those around you even though those commands are sufficient for us. For, for, I think, far too many evangelism sermons, sharing the gospel kind of sermons, they, they oftentimes have the feel of kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do it. And I should know because I've preached them before. But I don't want to do that again. I want, to, I want to take you to what I think is the root, kind of the fundamental motivation. I want, to, I, want to, I want to equip you, not with any kind of outline or anything. I want to equip you at a fundamental level to leave you with more than a to-do, but also a how-to. And that's why I've provided this quote here in, in your notes. I want you to read it with me. Mike Horton says, Precisely because the church is first of all the place, and he doesn't obviously mean the, the bricks and mortar, the, the building, he means the gathering. Precisely because the church is first of all the place where God, and no, notice that, where God, notice the prior action, God does certain things, it becomes a people who belong to a new society that is being formed in this present evil age. And then he talks about evangelism and acts of service. By their acts of witness and deeds, believers share the gifts they have been given with their neighbors. Share the gospel. We share the life, death, and resurrection of Christ with our neighbors. But notice these last two lines. This is what I want you to key in on. However, before they can serve, they must be served. Before they can act, they must receive how often we get the order the other way I'll do and then maybe God will come along with me maybe God will help me when, I, when I'm out doing but what Horton is saying is that God does God feels God acts and then out of the overflow of that then we act as well we must be we must be served before we can serve. We must receive before we can act. You see, the truth is, and this is, a, this is a, I think, a good place to see this in the book of Acts. The truth is, there aren't a ton. I want you to hear me very carefully, because I'm going to qualify it. 
there are not a ton of commands to evangelize in the Scriptures. You ever thought about that? I mean, certainly we have some, so I'm not saying that there are none. We have them. The Great Commission. Obviously, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. We have some like we have texts like First Peter chapter five. But what I would what I would point you to is there are not a ton of commands to evangelize, but there are a ton of examples of evangelizing. You notice that there are not a ton of commands to do it, but rather there are a ton, especially in the book of Acts, a ton of examples, which in my mind suggests this that goes along with this quote. Sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is not intended to be some artificial exercise in the Christian life. Sharing the gospel is not intended to be some artificial exercise. Rather, it is intended to be the natural overflow of the gospel in and through our lives. It's not out here and something that we get to. Rather, it is in here and is something that comes out. And so that's why it's so important. That's why it's so important that we gather every single Lord's Day, every single Lord's Day, to hear the gospel proclaimed to us first before we can proclaim it to anyone else. That's why it's so important that we come together and we sing about the gospel. That's why it's so important that we come together and we see the gospel reenacted in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. That's why it's so important that we come together and we fellowship around and through the gospel. That's why it's so important that we we meditate and we hear and we think about and we pray about the gospel and what God has done on our behalf in and through the person and work of Christ. God is the actor. We are the receivers. And then that works its way out in neighborhoods and homes and families and all around the world. And so very quickly, what I, what I want to call us back to this morning is evident through, in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, and that is this, that the gospel must serve both as the message and the motivation in our evangelism. And so you want to talk about a how-to, like I don't have an outline for you, all right? I don't have start this way and end this way. All I can tell you is this is the message, all right? Holy God, sinful people, Christ who has come and paid our penalty in full on the cross, raised from the dead, and all who place their faith in him receive eternal life. That is the gospel, but what I want, what I want to make sure that you connect the dots on is that it's not only our message, that it's also our motivation. It's what moves us to share the gospel. It's what we see in the truths that we share as we, as we studied this morning. Think about it. I want, you to, I want you to connect the dots between what we're about to say and what we've already said, that we should have the same concern for other souls, that we should, we should have the same confidence in God's sovereignty and the same passion for Christ's kingdom. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, you just do it. No, we do it through the gospel. Because as you see there in your notes, it is as we remember the grace of the gospel that we are motivated with genuine love for others. Got anybody in your life you don't like? Maybe any unbelievers in your life that you don't like? My encouragement for you is not, hey man, you just need to, you just need to do it. You just need to have more love for that person. You just need to have more concern. I mean, that's true. But I would, I would suggest that the only way that we can get to that point 
with genuine love. The only way we can get to the point where we see Paul testifying to God, to the kingdom of God and persuading and imploring to come to Christ. The only way we're going to see that kind of genuine love is as we remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were far off, he died for us. And if a holy and infinite God could send his own son to do that, surely we could do that for sinners like us. Surely we could love them with that kind of love and the power of the gospel. It's as we remember the grace of the gospel that we are motivated with genuine love for others. And it is as we embrace the truth of the gospel that we are strengthened in the face of rejection. It is as we embrace the truth of the gospel that we are strengthened in the face of rejection. How do you not despair when others reject you? How do you not, how do you not just kind of cower back? And how do you not just become discouraged as people reject the gospel? It is in this way, remembering that our identity is not tied up in how many people we win for Christ. Our identity is tied up in who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. It's by remembering the gospel, going back to the gospel, that yes, they may reject me, but I am accepted in Christ. And that's all that matters. I'm accepted in Christ. And so the power of the gospel trumps the opinions of man. And it is, last, as we behold the wonder of the gospel, that we are stirred in our affections for Christ's kingdom. It is as we are stirred in as we behold the wonder of the gospel, that we are stirred in our affections for Christ's kingdom. A couple of weeks ago, uh, after I had preached, preached on Acts chapter 15, and you remember that's the Jerusalem Council, and so there's this emphasis there upon the, the glorious gospel of grace. And so I preached that morning, 9, 11 o'clock, and then came back that night, of course, and preached the six o'clock sermon. And after the sermon, uh, I'd gotten through preaching, and we had wrapped up the service, and I was walking across these steps, about to head out backstage and go home. And I was was really, really tired. I was, quite honestly, feeling sorry for myself uh, in an ungodly way. And, And I could see this person wanted to talk with me. And I, in my flesh, wanted to go home, uh, but the Spirit prompted me to speak to him. And so uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm a great pastor. I'm just saying this is where I was at that night, all right? And, and so I, I, I did go down and I asked him his name, and he told me, and he indicated that he was from out of town. It was kind of a random, uh, random appearance here at Churchbrook Hills. He's from out of state, actually, and just happened to be here that night. And, uh, and so we introduced ourselves, and immediately he said, he said, I've got a problem with something you said. And I thought, all right, uh, go ahead. And uh, he, said, he said, you said in your sermon that the, you said that the weakest, that in Christ, the weakest believer and the strongest saint are equally justified, equally forgiven in, before God. He said, you believe that? I said, well, hold on, let me make sure. Uh, yeah, yes, 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 I believe that, yes, indeed. And he said, then why have I been doing all these things for all these years? Why have I been told 
to pray all these kind of all these kind of formal prayers? Why have I been told to I must receive this sacrament and I must do this and I must do that in order to be saved? Why have I been told that? Either what you're saying is true or what or what I'm saying is true, basically. And so we sat down there for about 40 minutes after the service. And I just was allowed, and he was the most great, was the most gracious listener. And, and so I walked him through passage after passage after passage of the free grace of God in Christ. Took him to Roman, took him to, to John chapter 10, Ephesians chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4. Spoke to him about the cross and the gospel. And I'll never forget, at the very end, he just kind of looked away. And he said, do you, do you really believe that all I have to do, are you really saying that all I have to do is believe in Jesus and I'll be saved? And, and it just kind of hit me at that moment. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what we believe. That's exactly what we are saying. That because, because of Jesus, in spite of my sin, in spite of my shame, in spite of my guilt, in spite of the wrath of God that I have earned, Jesus Christ has come. He has lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died upon the cross, and he is raised in victory over sin. And all who call on the name of the Lord, yes, indeed, they will be saved. I tell you that to tell you this. It was as I was going home that night that I was renewed with a real desire to publish the message of the gospel. In my home, neighborhood, and wherever God takes me. It wasn't anything that I had done, anything that I had engendered in my own heart. It was simply being refreshed in the gospel that led me then to want to publish the gospel to others. And in my opinion, that's the how-to. There are ways, there are techniques, there are all kinds of things that we can explore. But fundamentally, if we want to see the gospel, if we want to see the gospel advance, if we want to have concern for other souls, we want to have confidence in the sovereignty of God and a passion for the kingdom of Christ, the kind of passion that we see in Acts chapter 28, 17 through 21, it will come through one means and one means only, and that is the gospel. Let's give ourselves to it.